Welcome to Investment Magazine's new podcast series, The Future of Super. These podcasts are an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, and industry stakeholders at a time when the system is being challenged over its very purpose, as well as its efficiency and its ability to deliver. We explore critical topics for executives responsible for governance, for operations, and for outcomes. We address vital issues relevant to the future of Australia's retirement savings system. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. Hello and welcome. Today on the Future of Super podcast series, we have Axie's Chief Executive Officer, Louise Davidson, along with Aware Super's CIO, Damien Graham. Thank you both very much for joining us. It's great to have you. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you. Great to be here. In this podcast, we want to look at two issues affecting Australia's super landscape, globalisation and governance both of which are already starting to affect where funds invest and the way they engage with the companies they invest in. Superannuation assets under management in Australia already top $3 trillion. That's about double the country's annual GDP, and research suggests in 40 years they'll be greater than the entire ASX market cap. And the federal government has launched yet another inquiry, this one catchingly titled The Implications of Common Ownership of Australia's Legal Framework and Consumer Harm, that seeks to assess the scale of the influence of institutional investors. So all of this begs the first question. Are super funds in Australia running out of local assets to invest in? If so, where are the opportunities? Are they mainly offshore? And secondly, what are the challenges involved in engaging with companies which are operating in different regulatory environments? All right, so first off, can I ask a bit of a background question? Just how significant a player do you think super funds are in terms of Australian asset ownership? But more importantly, how strong do you think their influence currently is in terms of governance? How are they flexing that muscle, if you like? Louise, maybe you can start us off on this one. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I guess that super funds are significant uh, in terms of Australian asset ownership. There's no um, no doubting that. And um, I guess as long-term owners, and Damien might want to jump in on some of this as an asset owner shortly, but as long-term owners, they really have a responsibility to manage governance and ESG risks in their investment portfolios, you know, because those risks have the potential to be um, very impactful on financial performance. So I think that the superannuation fund sector is an influential player and has been influential over the years in terms of raising governance standards in Australia. Um, and as large asset owners, engaging with companies and exercising voting rights is a critically important part of their responsibility as long-term investors, as, as fiduciaries. And I think that... Um, you know, advocating for strong governance standards on issues that have material financial risks for companies helps super funds to achieve the best financial outcomes for their members 
um, for the beneficiaries of the super funds. And that's a really important role. So I think, um, you know, this growing influence, so to speak, of super funds is something that's getting more uh, attention at the moment, but it's something that super funds both in Australia and around the world have been doing for a long time, really because it is such a critical part of making sure that they deliver financially for, for their members. Damien? Yeah, oh, sorry, Damien, go ahead. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly echo. I think Louise is, has uh, summed that up really nicely. And I think when, when you think about the expectations our members have and the regulator has and, uh, and other stakeholders have on, on asset owners, super funds, it, there's not a lot of choice but to make sure that we are helping the companies that we invest in to uh, operate as well as possible because we think that will deliver the strong long-term returns our members need. So it's, I don't think there's an obvious choice to, to doing anything different but, by, but then uh, interacting positively and trying to provide them with uh, guidance as to how we think they should, they should operate to, to drive strong long-term shareholder value. Um, and we do, we do know, and I think Louise touched on it well, that we do believe that companies that operate positively from an ESG perspective, from a governance perspective, are more likely to create long-term shareholder value. Um, we internally have done some research in the last few years across a couple of different lenses. A few years ago, we went through a process of engaging with corporates around long-term value creation, and we know that strong performance, strong behavioural and governance elements are very important to that. And then last year, we also went through a process of uh, undertaking some research around conduct and culture. And again, very strong alignment to shareholder value when you see strong conduct and culture coming through corporates. So we don't think there's a lot of option. We think it's an important element and uh, there's a fiduciary nature to it as as Louise also touched on. And I think you only have to look at, um, you know, some recent high-profile examples in the Australian market to see the potential for, um, you know, financial impact, negative financial impact that poor management of ESG can have. So, you know, if you look at the um, sexual harassment case at AMP or Dukan Gorge, Rio Tinto, you know, how much time and money has been spent by those companies in managing those issues, time and money that could have been spent on, you know, <laughs> creating sustainable long-term returns for investors if they had managed their ESG um, more effectively. Thank you for that, Louise. But, Louise, back in May, you and I spoke about proxies and proposed changes to rules requiring proxy advice firms to hand over their research and non-binding voting advice to companies five days in advance of giving it to their clients. Now, notwithstanding that particular complication, it's probably a whole separate debate, but how important do you think proxies are to the ability of funds to engage with the companies that are investing? So, I mean, I think... um First thing to say is that as universal owners, super funds are invested in a very large number of companies. You know, most of our members would be would have um, hundreds of companies in their investment portfolios, and uh, then it's it really makes sense for them at AGM time to be able to access research and advice that helps them uh, to inform their decision making process in in the voting. Um, at, at AGMs. As you know, AGMs all occur in a pretty two pretty short spaces of time, but particularly the main proxy season in, uh, that is just coming up, actually. Um, it, it's a really busy time and uh, it's really, uh, I think, a cost-efficient 
and effective way for um, super funds to get uh, good advice about companies that they have to make decisions about voting on, um, it, it, you know, from, from a proxy advisor. Like that just is much um, more cost efficient than if every super fund had to do it themselves. And I think um, so then to go to the issue about um, the ability of funds to engage with companies that they invest in, uh, I, I think the engagement process is sometimes mischaracterised because it actually meets with hundreds of, uh, it takes hundreds of company meetings every year and many of those companies are deliberately building long-term relationship because they value the constructive to and fro that we have on issues, you know. So um, we, we, they, they want to know what their shareholders think about the way they're managing issues. They want to know um, whether, you know, shareholders think that what they're doing on um, climate change is in line with what the investors themselves um, want to do in their own portfolios because they don't want a mismatch between their uh, strategy, their corporate strategy, and the strategy of the super funds. So I think um, you know that's that in my mind is a really constructive process and um, um, one that I think companies, a lot of companies, value really highly. So I think the other thing to say, our members are long-term holders of companies in Australia, particularly. You know, and so let's say I mean, most of our members would have an index exposure to at least the ASX fifty. And so they don't have the choice to sell out of those companies. They hold those companies and it's in their interest for those companies to succeed and to manage their ESG risks effectively. And part of that process is regular engagement to understand what companies are thinking about particular ESG issues. Understandable. While we're on ESG issues, um, diversity, sustainability, I, I want to pose this question to both of you, but can you give us a bit of a report card as to how Australian companies are stacking up globally? Are there areas that are ahead of their US, EU and British peers or is it the opposite and are we lagging? So uh, so it's a mixed um, report card, I would say, um, and in some areas we're doing well. Um, Axie has been doing, for example, a, a piece of research every year for um, quite a number of years now, I think about um, 10 or 15 years, which looks at the sustainability reporting um, that companies do. And that is quite an interesting benchmark because it shows that there has been a really, really significant increase over time in um, the, the quality of the ESG reporting and the understanding that ESG is actually a financial issue. You know, uh, once upon a time it was common for ESG issues to be um, kind of in the glossy um, you know, community relations part of an annual report. And um, it was, you know, companies would proudly show you about the donations they'd made to various charities when you asked them about ESG. But the, that is, those days are well past. And now there is much deeper understanding about what ESG means and the fact that it's, um, you know, has a, a financial impact. So then to look at various different issues on ESG, because it does sort of vary a bit, I think, um, in, in terms of climate change, uh, Australian companies, um, particularly in our exposed sectors, have done a reasonable job in managing and reporting on this, but there are some countries around the world that probably have a stronger level of regulation around that, and that means that companies in those jurisdictions might have done more, although 
Um, of course, the companies in Australia that have a global exposure, and that includes all our big mining companies, um, they obviously have to really take into account the regulations in every jurisdiction that they operate. Um, in terms of gender diversity, I think this is a really good story for Australia because I think we are one of the first, um, uh, one of the few countries in the world to have exceeded 30% women on our top listed company boards. Um, I think Canada uh, and the UK are the only other ones. And there are not many countries that have got there without the use of quotas. So I think that is a real success story where investors and companies have worked together to really make progress in that area. Although caveat that by saying there's still a lot of work to be done in respect to the executive ranks and also chairs. There's not many women chairs on company boards. Um, and then the final one I'll touch on is governance, corporate governance. So I think, again, a bit of a mixed report card because um, in um, if, if I went back 10 years, I think Australia would have been considered to have had one of the strongest um, corporate governance uh, frameworks in the world, but we haven't moved as fast as some other companies to continue to build on that, in my view. And so there is a risk that we might end up lagging a bit. There are some really good stories, you know, so the ASX corporate governance principles is an example of good, good practice. Um, and I think, um, you know, we would expect that over, over the years, we would hope to see corporate governance frameworks, I guess, um, strengthened rather than weakened. Um, and so things like um, reducing the, um, can, you know, the, the changes to the continuous disclosure um, rules recently were disappointing from that perspective. Damien, can you um, can you add more to this, please? Look, I'll just make a couple of comments. I think um, one of the things that I think has, has evolved materially in the last 10 years, and I did, I think I, I made this mention when I was uh, at the AXI conference, but is that when I talked to a fund manager seven or eight years ago, um, Australian fund manager, and said, how do you weight E, S and G? Uh, they said it's 90% G, it was uh, 9% E, and it was 1% S. And I think that's materially changed in the last seven to ten years. So while a large number of, of factors, companies are focused on, on much more broadly uh, the SG issues that matter. And I do think that when we talk to companies and engage with companies, and really pleasingly, uh, Climb is a great example where companies are very focused on making sure that they're evolving as well. So I, I do think the landscape for, for what, what's expected of companies has changed quite a lot in the last decade. Uh, and so I do think that their Australian companies are much more uh, or they're attempting to do much more than they used to do 10 years ago where it just was all about financial outcomes or more about financial outcomes than it is today, clearly. So I do think the, the, the landscape's changed. And we have some very productive engagements with companies that we, uh, through our research process, have a target list of engagement uh, targets or companies. And we have some very pr productive conversations to try to help them understand what we need as an investor. So... I do think the I do think Australian companies are evolving and trying hard to, in general, to to really understand the expectations and to to push themselves forward and to to operate in a way that can create that value and benefit for investors to to be involved with them. So I do think that uh, that that lens is very much in in the, the way that they're operating. But I also um, think that there's oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Please go on. Sorry, Stuart. I also think that there is. Um, now a much greater understanding about the fact that um, ESG issues 
uh, can and do have a material financial impact mm. on company performance. You know, yep. so at one stage I think it was really easy for those issues to be characterised as kind of feel-good or ethical investing mm. or what have you. But, um, but you know, we've had so many cases now where it's evident that the financial impact is significant when mm. things are not managed well. And then I think for, uh, climate change um, is, you know, like kind of the ultimate example of that because if we, you know, if, if companies that have a material financial exposure to climate change don't successfully manage a transition to a low-carbon economy, then, um, you know, they don't have a sustainable future. Mm. And we don't want that for companies that our members invest in. But I was going to, I was going to ask um, Damien, just in terms of a comparison, though, how, how, where do you think Australia stacks up with the rest of the world? I think I, I would agree with how, how Louise has characterised it. I think some things we are positive. I think from a climate perspective, clearly um, my view is that the the, lands, the regulatory landscape is not as um, directive in Australia as it is in some other regions. So I think that that means that companies um, have, a, have a different operating landscape. And so um, simple things like TCFD disclosure and, and that sort of regime is not... Not, not enforced the same way here as offshore, so in some, some jurisdictions. So I think that those sort of things mean that uh, some things we are positive and some things we are not as strong on. And I, I do think it's it's regional, though. I, I always uh, liken them when you think about ESG and you can go around the larger regions. I, I do think Europeans are probably leading the way. I think that we are, um, you know, fast followers in, in lots of different ways from an Australian perspective. I think it's, uh, the US, in my sense, is it's lagging a little bit. And Asia's also a little bit of a laggard in some areas as well. So I, I do think that Australia is doing well in some areas, uh, less well in some others. And I, I would also echo the point that Louise made uh, with regard to disclosure regime that was updated recently. I, I think things like that um, aren't a positive step in my mind because we're trying to ensure that um, strong shareholder disclosure regimes support investor understanding and can really uh, to ensure that inf- investors have the right information to make decisions. So... I think that from a governance perspective wasn't, uh, wasn't a positive step. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. Okay, well, just talking about the the climate issue then, what responsibility do you think Australian super funds have, you know, given the influence that they can bring to bear on companies, to say to them, look, what you're doing on the climate front just isn't good enough. Look at company A, B, C, X, Y, Z from from Europe, I think you mentioned, were ahead of us. Can or should funds take it to corporate, corporate Australia and try and raise the standard to at least the best climate change practices we see overseas? I'm, a, I'm happy to comment. I, I do think that there is a really strong fiduciary duty, as, as we've touched on. So something that we did late last year was we actually divested from thermal coal producers from our portfolios. Um, we've also created in our transition plan, climate change transition plan, a target to reduce our listed equity portfolios carbon footprint by um, 30% by 2023, and we've actually already achieved that. We're about 45% lower than the index 
in our listed equity portfolio. But that that why I raise that is I do think that investors and, and us as an example do need to think about how to support the economy to transition to that lower carbon future. And that will be through a lot of different activities. Some of it will be just engaging with companies that we own, that we invest in, that are, um, you know, can be regionally large emitters and thinking about how they're considering transitioning to a lower carbon future. Where we think there's increased stranded asset risk comes back to that fiduciary duty and coal, coal producers was an example there. We did take the d- decision to divest. Um, and so that, that, that's something we don't do lightly by any means, but it's, it's, it's the spectrum of activity we can undertake from heavy engagement to divestment at the other end, and that's a decision we made on the, on the coal producers. So I, I raise that issue, I raise that example, because I, I think to your point, Stuart, we do take it seriously how we're engaging across the, the assets we own, whether they're listed companies or even the unlisted assets we own, as to how to try, try to support the economy to transition to that lower carbon future. Now, we as a fund have made a commitment to net zero by 2050. We want to reduce our carbon footprint by approximately half by 2030. So we've got very strong objectives and, and we do need to make changes. And if we don't make changes in the nearer term, then we won't get to those medium and longer term goals. So uh, I do think engagement's a critical piece to that. And the point I made before around Australian companies too is that I do believe that companies, particularly in those um, more exposed areas, think heavily about this issue, clearly. They're not sitting on their hands, not considering how they can support a future with a lower carbon economy. Um, and so I do think broadly, you know, engagement is always our preference, um, but we did take a, that decision from an investment perspective on thermal coal. Thank you. Thank you for your comments on that one. Now, we probably better pivot um, away from uh, governments towards the, the, the second thing we wanted to talk about today, which was globalisation. Now, having established just how invested in Australian assets the super funds already are, let's turn our attention to where to now or where to next. So first of all, how true is it that as they grow bigger and bigger, funds are running out of local assets to invest in? That's the first thing. I mean, Australian Supers Chair Don Russell has said that his fund has already more than 30 staff in London. They're planning to have about 80 in New York in the next few years. Damien, if I could ask you first, where do you think the future investment opportunities lie? Is it overseas developed markets or do you see opportunities in EM markets such as China as well? Mercer recently published a report recommending a much higher onshore China exposure in equity portfolios because of the potential returns. Where, where, where do you see the, the, the next level of, or the next areas of investment? Yeah, I mean, I'd characterise it by saying that we do expect to continue to have a strong exposure to Australian assets for the foreseeable future. So, But we do expect as we grow and as the super system grows that more a higher proportion of the super assets will be invested around the world. So um, if you look at our portfolio today, it's probably broadly 50-50 domestic offshore and we would expect that the tilt towards offshore will slowly continue to grow um, as we get larger and, and as we need to invest more money, naturally the bias will slightly tilt towards offshore. But, but there's pros and cons to that offshore, and I think uh, the point I was going to make on, on that, which people uh, do talk a lot about a growing set of opportunities overseas, and I think that's right. It's a deeper market. It's a, it's a larger capital pool. But there are some benefits in domestic, uh, investing domestically as well, which we know that 
being close to the market, being close to the relationships and understanding the dynamics, the demographics, the trends in your local market can provide great opportunities. So we always will look at the Australian market as a strong opportunity set. But increasingly for us and most funds, I think, and, and you mentioned Australian super, will clearly continue to invest in probably a growing proportion of their assets overseas as, as we get larger. I, I think developed market, emerging markets, uh, they're both important. Um, we certainly think there's strong opportunities in developed markets and, and we, like a lot of funds, are considering how we can access them best because we do think people on the ground uh, is important to make sure you've got those local relationships and you can be an effective investor in these different markets. So we, we will also have people based around the world in the next you know, one or two years. With regard to emerging markets, and China is a good example, we, we've also been of the view that China has off, offered a very strong backdrop of economic growth. And something that we did about four years ago now was uh, we undertook uh, the process of securing a QFI licence or an, an allocation to A shares uh, so that we could we could establish a mandate of, of uh, Shanghai-based um, companies or, or um, listed in, in Shanghai. And that's been uh, a positive outcome for us. We've certainly been able to deliver strong alpha or outperformance. Um, the market itself, the A-shares market, is, is pretty volatile and not, not uh, while it's a very large market, it obviously has some, some characteristics that are similar to other emerging markets. But, but again, that's been a really positive uh, opportunity for us. We've also taken an opportunity in the unlisted market because what we think is critical in any investment market is to be able to form the view that you as a minority investor can generate a positive risk-adjusted return. And so we also like investments in unlisted um, or private equity in China. So that, that's, been, that's been our more recent focus. But we do maintain that exposure into listed A shares in, in China um, and it's, it's certainly delivered strong outperformance from the local market. So I do, I think, just by characterising to finish up, Stuart, I, I definitely think that we will see more investments around the world, and that will be in, in public and private markets. Uh, areas such as infrastructure and property are very prospective, and but we won't forget Australia. So I think Australia will continue to offer some strong opportunities as well. I do have to ask the question though: What about the um, the ESG risks in China? Though it's a it's a fraught market, and without wanting to spend too much time on it, um, how do you how do you balance um, investing or, or taking advantage of the opportunities in China with the uh, with the obvious risks? Yeah, it's a really good point. It's one that we've thought a lot about, to be honest. We certainly have a bias towards um, investing in businesses that we feel we've got a strong understanding of their value chain and their supply chains, um, their governance, and, and that's why, why we have tilted a little bit more in our exposure towards private markets where we can have a high level of control and a high level of understanding of the, the businesses that we would be investing in. But it's a relevant issue and it's one that we certainly um, always have in the front of our mind with regard to allocating, and not just in China. I mean, it can be um, uh, many markets around the world have nuances or challenges um, around certain facets. We invested uh, some money a number of years ago into Brazil, and, and clearly Brazil has, uh, has governance issues, and so we needed to think very heavily about how to manage those as well. So um, these markets certainly, they're, they're emerging in, in some of the various natures, but, but certainly uh, China has some examples of ESG issues that we, we can't forget. Thank you for your comments.
Look, we're we're starting to run out of time, so let's jump to our final our final point or our final question. Let's crystal ball gaze for a moment and say Australian funds do increasingly invest overseas. Um, our funds will be much smaller fish in a much bigger pond. What will be the challenges we'll face in engaging with the companies we invest in? Then maybe um, Louise, you want like to start us off on that one? Yeah, sure. Well, um, that's true. Um, but I guess we've been there <laughs> because once upon a time we were pretty small fish in Australia as well. Um, and uh, so the challenges I imagine will be similar. Um, and, you know, it's about um, partly about access in terms of geographical access to engage with companies. Mind you, I do think that the pandemic has probably given us all a bit of a hand in that regard because Zoom is now such a natural part of our lives, whereas once it was uh, considered to be really quite inferior compared to um, um, meeting in person. So there's the geographical access. There's also um, the, uh, I, I think, you know, needing to understand the local risks and opportunities, which is a whole different picture, you know, So, and obviously such, such a broad range of risks and opportunities in different countries and different jurisdictions and so on. You know, so, for example, um, a lot of investors here have spent quite a lot of time in the last um, six to 12 months or maybe it's 18 months now, I'm losing track of time in the pandemic, um, getting a much deeper understanding of the stakeholder issues for mining companies working on Indigenous lands. Now, that is going to be multiplied by tens tens and tens of different um, particularities in different countries. And so it's a lot of information to get across, um, you know, a lot of information for um, all of us to understand. And so, again, I think working together and pulling our um, research um, opportunities is probably going to be a really good way to do it. The other thing to say is that there are a lot of um, asset owners around the world who have a really similar approach to the uh, approach of the Australian uh, super funds to managing ESG risk. And you can see, you know, for example, the huge signatory base of the UN of the um, UN-backed PRI principles for responsible investment, um, which demonstrates that ESG management of risk around the world is taken very seriously by super funds. So maybe part of what we will need to do is to be, um, you know, developing, further developing the relationships that we have with investors around the world, talking to people in their own home countries and offering to do the same for them here. Damien, your final comments on that one? Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree. Uh, I think Louise has hit the nail on the head with regard to how we'll develop into there, but I do think the collectives are very important. So... Now, we, we currently vote proxies around the world. We utilise advisors. We utilise our offshore managers. Um, and I, I do think in different regions you, you very much need to understand the relationships you can tap into and the information you can get to support that process. And whether that's finding a new investment or whether that's uh, voting on a, on a proxy or whether that's engaging with a company, I, I don't think the rules change too much. And I, I, I think those collectives are very useful to be able to do that in a uh, scalable but also an effective manner. So um, I, I think there's it's a job we can't avoid. What we need to make sure is we're buying assets around the world that we can properly engage with them. And, uh, and that just takes different, different thinking as we get uh, more offshore. Splendid. On that note, I think we should finish. Um, thank you both very much indeed for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Really enjoyed Thanks, it. Stuart. Thanks, Louise.
Thank you.